Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at graceforsufalls.org. If you would turn in your Bible with me to Psalm 31, the text of our sermon, as you can see in your order of worship, is the entire psalm, and it's actually quite lengthy. In the order of worship, it stretches under three pages. We're going to focus primarily on just one verse in this psalm, verse 5, which in your order of worship comes at the end of that first section, into your hand I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord, faithful God. But I think it's important to think not only of that one verse, but of the entire psalm, the whole song, and how the pieces fit together. And so we're going to look at all of it. The reason I encourage you to look at it in your Bible, not just in your order of worship, is that there are a few other passages I'm going to ask you to look at as well so we can make some connections that are important to make as we contemplate God's Word. So this is Psalm 31. It's to the choir master, a psalm of David. In you, O Lord, do I take refuge. Let me never be put to shame. In your righteousness deliver me. Incline your ear to me. Rescue me speedily. Be a rock of refuge for me, a strong fortress to save me. For you are my rock and my fortress, and for your name's sake you lead me and guide me. You take me out of the net they have hidden for me, for you are my refuge. Into your hand I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord, faithful God. I hate those who pay regard to worthless idols, but I trust in the Lord. I will rejoice and be glad in your steadfast love. Because you have seen my affliction, you have known the distress of my soul, and you have not delivered me into the hand of the enemy. You have set my feet in a broad place. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am in distress. My eye is wasted from grief, my soul and my body also. For my life is spent with sorrow, and my years with sighing. My strength fails because of my iniquity, and my bones waste away. Because of all my adversaries, I have become a reproach, especially to my neighbors, an object of dread to my acquaintances. Those who see me in the street flee from me. I have been forgotten like one who is dead. I have become like a broken vessel. For I hear the whispering of many, terror on every side, as they scheme together against me, as they plot to take my life. But I trust in you, O Lord. I say, you are my God. My times are in your hand. Rescue me from the hand of my enemies and from my persecutors. Make your face shine on your servant. Save me in your steadfast love. O Lord, let me not be put to shame, for I call upon you. Let the wicked be put to shame. Let them go silently into Sheol. Let the lying lips be mute, which speak insolently against the righteous in pride and contempt. 
Oh, how abundant is your goodness, which you have stored up for those who fear you and worked for those who take refuge in you in the sight of the children of mankind. In the cover of your presence, you hide them from the plots of men. You store them in your shelter from the strife of tongues. Blessed be the Lord, for he has wondrously shown his steadfast love to me when I was in a besieged city. I had said in my alarm, I am cut off from your sight. But you heard the voice of my pleas for mercy when I cried to you for help. Love the Lord, all you his saints. The Lord preserves the faithful and abundantly repays the one who acts in pride. Be strong and let your heart take courage, all you who wait for the Lord. Father, We pray that we would be strong as we wait upon you. We ask that you would quicken us as we listen to your word, that you would reveal the meaning of it to us. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. I hope that in that song you can find many verses that resonate right now that speak to you. What I want to talk about, though, is commitment. The nature of of commitments. And to do that, I need you to turn with me to a couple of passages. I want you to look at a couple of examples in your Bible. We're going to trace a thread here. So the first place to look is in Luke's gospel, chapter 23. Luke's gospel, chapter 23. This is the story of the crucifixion. And as Luke tells the story, he gives us details that are a little bit different. He gives us a fuller picture than what we have been looking at in John's gospel. So in Luke's account, we get the story of the the two men who are crucified side by side with Jesus, and we also learn final words from Christ. We read this in Luke 23, verse 46. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. Jesus on the cross says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Now, turn in your Bible forward a little bit to the book of Acts. We'll go to Acts chapter 7. In Acts chapter 7, we're learning about the early church. We're learning specifically about the life of one of the original deacons, Stephen, and his martyrdom. He preaches the gospel, and as a result, he is stoned for it. You remember, before that happens, he echoes the words of Jesus. He asks that that God will forgive those who are in the midst of killing him, just as Christ had asked the Lord to pardon those who were crucifying him. But in Acts chapter 7, verse 59, we read this. As they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. So again, he echoes the words of Christ on the cross. He commits his spirit to the Lord Jesus. Now, go farther forward a little bit more towards the end to uh, 1 Peter. We went through the epistles of Peter not too long ago, so you may remember some of this, but in 1 Peter chapter 4, at the end of chapter 4, as Peter is giving encouragement to those who suffer for their faithfulness to Christ, he writes these words, therefore, 
Let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. So in those three instances, you see something happening, a little thread going on. First, Jesus does it. Jesus commits his spirit to the Father. And then Stephen follows Jesus' example. In his death, he emulates the words of Christ. And then Peter, in the third instance, tells all of us to do the same thing. He says, all of you who are called to suffer in faithfulness should entrust your souls to a faithful creator. The same idea taking place. So the question is, what does it mean to commit your soul, to commit your spirit to God? What is that all about? When you read the gospel account, you may be tempted to think that this is something you should do in the moment of death. That what Jesus is talking about is, as he's about to die, he knows the spirit will be separated from the body, and so he's asking God to kind of take his spirit into care during that period of separation. And the fact that Stephen says these words immediately before his death might reinforce that idea. But when Peter tells all of us to think this way, to entrust our souls in this way, it opens up, let's say, a a deeper understanding, a richer understanding of what's going on. Committing your spirit, committing your soul to God is not just a moment of death thing. It's not just about the moment of death. It's about a way of living that changes the way we face even death. So committing your spirit to God is not something that you do at the last minute. It's something that you're called to do throughout the Christian life. There are two aspects of this commitment. If you read Calvin's commentary on Psalm 31, he brings this out. He says, on the one hand, there is trusting God to preserve us safe in the grave, which is what you would expect. But there's also this this other layer, trusting God to protect us from the dangers of this world. That when we commit our spirit to God, we are trusting him not only for what happens after death, but for what happens in this life as well. In fact, Calvin has a a good insight into the significance of what Jesus is doing when he says these words on the cross. He writes that Christ, when commending his soul to his Father, undertook the guardianship of the souls of all his people. In other words, Jesus, in this act of commitment, commits himself to the Father on our behalf, and takes what Calvin calls guardianship or possession, responsibility to protect the souls of all his people, which is why Stephen cries out to the Lord Jesus as opposed to the Father. Because Christ has taken upon himself this guardianship. In other words, committing your soul to God is another way of talking about the theme that we've been tracing in the Psalms for a couple of weeks now, which is the idea of taking refuge in God. You might think of it as a synonym, that to commit your spirit to God is a synonym for taking refuge 
in God, for seeking comfort in him. And if that's the case, it shouldn't be any surprise that the words that Jesus speaks on the cross are actually the words that we find in Psalm 31, verse 5. It's complicated to say, is Jesus quoting the psalm? Is he thinking of the psalm, remembering that song, maybe that he learned in childhood and the words are coming to him now? I tend to think there's something more complex, something deeper going on, that the psalms are written in anticipation of their use by the Son of God. So that as we've been doing throughout this series, we can go back to Psalm 31 and we can see the way that it points not only to David, its author, but also to Christ to come. Not that every detail applies to the life of Christ, but there's a a thrust, a culmination that points us to the example of Christ. And what Christ is doing here is showing us where we should take refuge, where we should commit our lives, that we should entrust them to the Lord. So we see three things here as we unpack this psalm. First, God is a rock of refuge. God is a rock of refuge. And this is something we need to remember in times of crisis. That God is a bastion, a fortress, a protection. That's number one. Number two, crisis is a teacher. Crisis is a teacher. But you have to be careful that you don't take away the wrong lesson. Crisis teaches us, but you can take away the wrong lessons from crisis. Third thing, this matters because there's only one way to live. It's revealed to us in the psalm. God is our rock of refuge. Crisis is a teacher, and there's only one way to live. First thing, when you're surrounded by danger, God is a rock of refuge. The form of Psalm 31 is interesting, and if you look in your order of worship, it's divided up so that you can appreciate this form a little bit easier. There are two things I want you to to see. First of all, it's divided into two parts. So verses 1 through 18 are kind of the main song. And then if you look at the end of the psalm in your order of worship, you'll see that the rest of the psalm is partitioned off as a song of thanksgiving and praise. What probably happened was in worship in Israel, this is a song that would have been used in the liturgy, and something would have happened in the worship service between the two parts. So you get the first song, the first 18 verses sung by the people, and then a pause in which some priest or minister would speak words of encouragement and assurance to the people. And afterwards, they would pick the psalm back up again, and they would sing that final portion of thanksgiving. Observing these structures in the psalm help us remember that these are texts that were written for the worship of God's people. There's another structure that we've formatted the psalm so that you can appreciate more. It's a chiastic structure. If you've not heard that word before, it's a common structure in Hebrew poetry, And you might think of it as a kind of uh, pyramid or a ladder where the different parts of the song correspond to one another. So there's an A section, and then a B section, and then a C section, and then a B section, and then an A section. So you have a a kind of an ascent, A, B, C, 
and then a descent, CBA. Or you might think of it this way as entering into a building. We have an outer courtyard, which is the A section, and then a threshold or a doorway, which is the B section, and that leads us into the inner sanctum, which is the C section, the middle part, the heart of the psalm. And then once we've been there, we exit again, and we go through the threshold once more, the B, and then into the courtyard, which is the A. See what I'm saying? So what you need to know is that outer courtyard, that is prayer. The A sections of of the psalm, at the beginning, the first five verses, and then again at the end, before we hit that break, these are prayers that are prayed. Now the threshold, in the middle there, the threshold, these are expressions of trust, assurances of, of the psalmist's trust in God, and then the inner sanctum is lament. When you actually get to the center, the core, there you find the lament, the despair, the, the crying out. But it's significant that, that you approach the lament to God, the crying out for deliverance to God. You approach it through prayer and declarations of trust. And having done that, we're free to lament, free to open our hearts to him. Now, the theme of the entire psalm is refuge, taking refuge in God. This is an idea that recurs throughout the psalm, and also, as we saw in Psalm 5 earlier, throughout the psalms. Refuge, like kingship, is one of the recurring themes of the Psalter, but here the sense of refuge comes out strongly. The psalmist is surrounded by enemies, by idolaters, and their attacks which are driven by the enmity that God places between the righteous and the unrighteous in Genesis 3. That enmity leads them to turn and attack him. And those attacks are so fierce that it's not just his enemies who are estranged from him. It's also his friends. His neighbors, he says, are distant. His acquaintances don't want to see him. People flee from him in the street because of this enmity, because of this danger, there's an alienation that has entered in, that has caused the feelings of despair that he has. The sense of alienation and distance that I think speaks to us in a special way right now. Being under attack, under siege as he is, David describes distance, separation, from those who were once his friends, his companions. He has nowhere to go except to God. In these days, our hearts, our instruments, are especially tuned toward lament, as David's was. But there's another distance that he sings about, and it's one that we need to keep in mind. This, too, I think, is easily relatable. It's the separation between the psalmist and God something he speaks of in that final section, that psalm of thanksgiving, is in his alarm, when he felt like he was in a besieged city, the words that he speaks in verse 22, he says, I am cut off from your sight. Not only distant from the world around him, but distant from God. And when you feel that way, when that is your reality, then you need exactly what 
David needs in this psalm. You need refuge because there is nowhere to turn but God. God, who is a rock, who is a fortress, literally in the Hebrew, a house of defense, a refuge, a shelter. One of the interesting things that I've seen on social media recently is this kind of thought experiment where people uh, choose the places they wish they could be sheltering in place. The reality is the pandemic comes and you end up kind of stuck where you're at, mostly at home. But imagine if you had been on some exotic vacation in some wonderful tropical paradise, and now you were forced indefinitely to remain there. Maybe that wouldn't be so bad. Or imagine an invitation coming from some friend of yours. Hey, come shelter in place with me. Don't worry, I have provided for everything. There is no danger here. I have an endless supply of toilet paper. You can come and and stay with us until this thing is over and you will be safe. You will be secure. Imagine right now how much of a comfort it would be to be able to go to a place that is untouched by all of the dangers that surround us. To be invited into a refuge in this way. Well, that's what God is In Psalm 31, he is a refuge, a shelter where we can dwell secure. Now, you start thinking about that and and sheltering in place with someone else, accepting an invitation like that, and it is complicated because that kind of refuge is a big commitment. If I shelter in place with you, I can't change my mind and then go somewhere else. So what you're asking is actually a pretty big deal, and what God is asking is actually a pretty big deal. Because if you shelter with God, you can't shelter anywhere else. Which is why I think many people, although it seems like a great offer, think to themselves, eh, maybe not. I have other commitments. I have other concerns, other places I might want to go. I cannot commit my spirit to you. I cannot find my refuge in you alone. God is a rock of refuge for those who take refuge in him. And crisis is a teacher. The interesting thing about pandemics, about end-of-the-world scenarios, is how much we kind of long for them. In our literature, in our entertainment, there are all sorts of novels, shows, stories about the end of the world. And the reason people are interested in that is many of them believe that these end-of-the-world scenarios will vindicate their values, will show that everybody else was decadent and everybody else wasn't paying attention, but the way that I live is the way that actually fits with reality. And so the crisis becomes a teacher. The crisis exists to show everybody else that they should do things my way, that they should choose to live the way that I live. Crisis is a teacher, but don't learn the wrong lesson. The lesson a lot of people are going to take away from this crisis is the lesson of self-reliance. We're going to look back on this and say the problem was we trusted too much in others. We trusted too much in government. We trusted too much in in hospitals or, or whatever, in the experts. And what we need to do is learn to rely on ourselves 
we need to take responsibility for ourselves. In the future, I'll have to look out for myself and make sure I'm provided for, not trust in others to keep me safe. That's the lesson many people will take away from this. On the one hand, good stewardship is important. The Bible emphasizes the importance of stewardship, but it's not the same thing. There's a difference between good stewardship and self-reliance. There is a lesson, I think, that God is teaching during this crisis. If only we will listen. But the lesson is not self-reliance. The lesson is God-reliance. Not self-reliance, God-reliance. On the cross, Jesus sang, but he didn't sing, I did it my way. And if anybody could have done that and pulled it off, Jesus could have done it. But Jesus, of all people on the cross, he commits his spirit to the Father. He acts as if he is dependent on the power of God. And in doing that, he models for us the proper lesson, the right lesson to take away. That we too are dependent upon God. The song on the lips of Jesus is Psalm 31. And the song on our lips should be Psalm 31 as well. Taking refuge in God means God-reliance. It means relying on God and not self. What does God-reliance look like? Well, first, to rely on God, you have to trust God. On either side of that core, that heart of lament in this psalm, you find these expressions of trust. There's a longer one at the beginning, but, but at the end, as we're sort of exiting the lament, you get just one verse, verse 14, as an expression of trust. It's significant here the way trust bookends the laments, right? because the laments of Scripture are not expressions of a lack of trust. It's not because we don't trust God that we're crying out to him. It is because we trust him that we turn to him. And that structure reinforces the fact But if you look at verse 14, you hear these words, you know, I I trust you because you are my God. You are my God. Which should remind you of the words of Psalm 16 that we looked at last week in verse 2. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I say to Yahweh, you are my Adonai. You are my God. Relying on God begins with trusting in God. That confession, you are my God, as simple as it is, contains everything. Utter reliance on God, rejecting all other hopes. And let's be clear about this. That rejecting all other hopes thing, that's important. I hate those, verse 6 says, who pay regard to worthless idols, but I trust in the Lord. In that first expression of trust in the psalm, there's a juxtaposition, a rejection of idolatry because I trust in the Lord. It's one way or the other. I seek refuge in the idols or I seek refuge in the Lord. There's no other option. Either God is my refuge and my hope or some false God is. Trusting in God means trusting in him alone. 
Relying on God means more than trusting him, though. It also means loving him, loving God. If you look at the very end of the psalm in that expression of thanksgiving, this is in verse 23, you read these words, Love the Lord, all you his saints. The Lord preserves the faithful, but abundantly repays the one who acts in pride. If you trust that God is your refuge, that he will preserve you, then simply love him. We're often looking for a call to action. What should we do? What should we do? What's the practical application? What are the bullet points at the end so I know how to live my life over the course of the next week? And the thing is, in the economy of grace, the call to action is a call to love. At the top of your to-do list, love. Trust him. Love him. Pour out your love upon him. Cherish him. And then do whatever flows from love. And all that you do, do it in love. But it's as simple as that. Love. Love him. That's what you're called to do. And you can see in the way that the words are structured. Love the Lord, all you his saints. The Lord preserves the faithful, but abundantly repays the one who acts in pride. That the contrary, the opposite of loving God is loving self. Acting in pride. The reason we reject God's offer of refuge ultimately is that we regard ourselves more than we regard him. Self-reliance. We rely upon self. We regard self. We love self and put self ahead of God. Put our own cares and concerns ahead of his cares and concerns. So trust God, love God, and finally wait on God. Be strong, verse 24 says, and let your heart take courage, all you who wait for the Lord. Instead of answering the question, what must I do to overcome? Instead, the psalmist tells us that only God can overcome. And we must wait upon the Lord. That our strength actually comes from our waiting, our willingness to wait upon the Lord. He strengthens us and gives us patience as we wait. So crisis is a teacher, but don't learn the wrong lesson of self-reliance. The lesson to learn here is the lesson of Psalm 31, the lesson that Jesus teaches on the cross, the lesson of God-reliance. Because God-reliance is the only way to live. There's one verse I want you to keep in mind that's kind of, it, it reveals the foundation of this psalm. It's Verse 15, it's at the beginning of the final prayer section. If you look at that, you read these words, My times are in your hand, rescue me. My times are in your hand, rescue me. This is the key. Again, it should remind you of what we saw last week in Psalm 16, this time in verse 5, You hold my lot psalmist saying, so I have a beautiful inheritance because you hold the lot. You hold the times. The times are in your hand. So one thing he's saying is the days of my life are in your control, Lord. You order my days. You're in control of of when I'm born and when I die. But he's saying something more than that as well. 
It's also saying that the times that I live in, the events of my days, are in your control, are in your hands. Imagine how differently you would feel right now if someone were in control. If there were someone who would come to you and say, don't worry, I have all of this under control. I'm going to fix this problem. Nothing can happen without me letting it happen. You don't need to worry. What an assurance that would be if someone could say those words and they were actually true right now. And one of the realities that that we're living through is the fact that no one can speak those words and, and, and have them be true. Because we're living through a situation that is outside of everyone's control. Which is why there's so much conflict, so much anxiety, so much worry. But imagine if it were all under control. Imagine if there were someone overseeing it all who could be trusted. Of course, the reality is, there is God. Our times are in his hand. Trust in him. Love him. Wait on him. One of the values of times like this is that it shows us that no one on earth really is in charge. What makes all the difference is when you know that God is. We sum it all up in words of Calvin. If you have spare time this afternoon or later in the week, I encourage you to go and look at Calvin's commentary on Psalm 31. I read through this after I'd prepared my sermon and realized I had no right to speak about Psalm 31 because it's a master class, his commentary on the rich depth of this psalm. But he writes these words, and it strikes me as as a good way to bring all of this to a conclusion. He says, Whoever relies not on the providence of God so as to commit his life to its faithful guardianship has not yet learned aright what it is to live. Whoever is not relying on the providence of God committing his life to its faithful guardianship, has not yet learned rightly what it is to live. There is a way to live as human beings, and it is to live in the hand of God. It's to live with your spirit, with your life committed to God, so that the anxiety, the care for it, can be relinquished as we live trusting in him. The corollary is this, Calvin adds, On the other hand, he who shall entrust the keeping of his life to God's care will not doubt of its safety even in the midst of death. The way that you can walk through the valley of death without fear is to know that he is with you, that your refuge is in him. If your enemies overcome you, if your enemies condemn you and alienate you, if people turn against you, so much so that even your friends are afraid to be seen with you, then we would look at that and we would say, you've lost control. Things have gotten out of hand. If your enemies gang up on you, they put you on trial and convict you and they execute you, we would all look and say, wow, he was in over his head. That's the reason why the gospel accounts take great pains to emphasize that at every step in the trial, condemnation, 
and crucifixion of Jesus, Jesus was in control, that nothing happened that he did not permit to happen, that he did not intend, that God had not ordained. That on the cross, Jesus was where he intended to be. So that we might never make the mistake of thinking that he was not in control. Even then, as he exercised that absolute control over his circumstances, even in that moment, he takes time to think of us, to teach us. And the lesson that he taught in committing his spirit to the Father was not look out for yourself. The lesson that he taught was look to the Father. Look to God. Look to your creator and redeemer. Commit your soul, your life to his care. Trust in him and love him. As Presbyterians, our theology teaches us that God is in control of every part of our life, every part of our salvation. Well, it is time to live as if we believe our theology, to live as if we really believe God is in control, that God has numbered even the hairs of our head, that nothing can befall us, that God has not ordained. It is time for us to walk without fear, without anxiety, To walk in safety, even in the midst of death, because we have committed our lives to his care. Thank you for listening. You can find more sermons from Grace and information about joining us for worship by visiting our website at graceforsufalls.org. We also invite you to visit the iTunes store and subscribe to the Sermons of Grace podcast.